What direction? What direction? How we answer that question has eternal. from high school. Uh, Faust was this brilliant man. He was a professor, German protagonist who was so dissatisfied with his life that he made a pact with the devil. And in exchange for his life, he got worldly pleasures and worldly stuff, unlimited knowledge. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's rendering of that story is known by many to be the best piece of German literature. We also learned about King Midas from Greek mythology in English lit class. Whom the, the satyr Selenius gave Midas the ability to turn anything to gold that he touched. And what he found out was that as soon as he touched his food, he could no longer eat it. And so he ended up starving to death. These iconic tragedies have endured the test of time because they speak to the heart of the human condition. They both illuminate a disguised vice that masquerades as a divine that is able to bring us ultimate joy and satisfaction, but will in fact ironically rob us of those very things. Paul would say it like this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Today we're continuing a series we started last week on God's generosity to us by uh, sitting under the teaching of one of Jesus' most obscure and unfamiliar, unfamiliar parables, which ironically follows probably his most familiar parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Our parable today is commonly called the parable of the shrewd steward or the unjust steward or the dishonest steward, and it's found in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, I'd like to pray for us, pray that God would help apply the word of life to our hearts and to our minds in such a way that it affects the way in which we live. So let's pray. Lord, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And today you are speaking to us about our culture's bail, uh, the one in which uh, we worship uh, knowingly at times. And you, uh, through your word, are guarding our hearts, are shepherding us, are actually bringing us real joy. And so give us wisdom to see past the distractions, past the disguise, to see 
where, where real joy and contentment come from and uh, help us to put this, put this into action to make us a generous people, we pray in Christ's name, amen. When Larry asked if I would preach this Sunday, he, he originally came to me and he said, Daniel, we need to give the congregation an opportunity to hear how your sabbatical was. So, so let's find a Sunday when you can preach and share with everyone what you learned on sabbatical. I said, great. And he said, oh, shoot, by the way, we're going to be right in the middle of our Journey of Faith series. So could you also, could it possibly be about God's generosity? I was like, well, you know what? Actually, I think it could. Providentially, while I was on sabbatical, I was going through the book of Luke, personally. And providentially, our text today, uh, among all the great stories in the book of Luke, God used to speak uh, very clearly to me and convict me about the way in which I was not only stewarding my finances, but the way in which I was stewarding my life. And so today, you're going to get to hear a little bit about what I was able to learn and what God taught me during my sabbatical, but it, it's really just a very small portion. Um, so to give you a better sense of how God richly blessed my sabbatical, I thought it would be good for me to continue a tradition I started five years ago when I came back from my first sabbatical and uh, to deliver to you my sabbatical synopsis in one of our contemporary culture's favorite storytelling mediums, rap. Well, my sabbatical was radical. It made my soul fanatical. It gave me rest. My family blessed. Got lots done on my honeydew list. Join our youth group down at Creek Camp. Why? I can't see because those are too dark. There we go. Join our youth group down at Creek Camp. Watch God work like only he can. Found out I'm not as flexible as I was when in middle school. Hard lesson to learn. Moved our fam to a new address. Had so much help, it eased our stress. Got everything into a box. Gene Woodall, y'all, is strong as an ox. The man is like 65, and he had just had heart surgery, and he's like lifting my bed and stuff. It was incredible. Took my son Isaac to the mountains. Talked about what a real man of God is. Put lots of miles on a minivan. Traveling to see all our fam. Worshiped with several other churches. Observing what they did in their services. So much awesome diversity. Wrapped up in all them liturgies. I had to put breaks in there so I could catch my breath. Read several books on different subjects. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, there it is. I lost the beat. Here we go. Read several books on different subjects. One, how to share with neighbor Muslims. The Gospel of Luke gave lots of fodder for the spirit, spark to light a fire. So let's listen to Jesus' teaching. It's timeless truth to us is reaching. Praying that my rest will return and bless you. Got to catch my breath. Thank the Lord I'm through. <clears throat> Those guys have better breath support than opera singers. I'm telling you right now. So now that I've accomplished objective number one, 
Let's dive into objective number two, shall we? Let's look at our text. So this is Jesus speaking. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what is, in, with, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So at first glance, you can see why this is not as popular as the prodigal son. I mean, the prodigal son is a story about betrayal. And, uh, and a father's uh, unending love and reconciliation by this good, good father. Our story is about a dishonest, corrupt manager whose interest in self-preservation alone causes him to forgive part of the debt of, that his master's debtors have. He's a swindler. He's a con man. And yet at first glance... It almost looks like Jesus is commending him to us. Yeah, I, I think I'd rather teach on the prodigal son too. But Jesus' teaching here is striking at the same vices as Faust and Midas. They found that the love of money brought destruction on them both. And so Jesus today is being generous to us and exposing a true threat to our souls. He begins by redirecting his attention from the tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees whom he began addressing in chapter 15, right before he began teaching on the prodigal son, to his disciples. So what he is saying here is directed to his followers. Look at verse 1. And he also said to the disciples... 
there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So we have a wealthy farmer who is so wealthy and has so much stuff that he actually needs to hire a manager slash accountant to take care of take care of his stuff, and accusations are brought that this guy is not doing a good job. In fact, he's wasting the, the wealthy owner's money. We don't know if this is like a Bernie Madoff kind of scoundrel or if he's just some petty thief, but what we do know is that in verse 8 down in the passage, he calls the man dishonest, and we know that apparently there was enough evidence against him that the wealthy owner fired him immediately, and that this dishonest manager did not feel he needed to rebut the accusations. Apparently, he knew he was guilty. So, with a very precarious future ahead of him, the manager begins to devise a plan to better his options. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to the other, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. There's much debate by commentators on the dubiousness or the merit of what the manager is doing right here. Um, It could be that he is so evil and he knows he's fired that he is actually cutting the profits of his wealthy owner's stuff. And he's just giving these discounts out. Or... It could be that he is actually moving the accounts of his wealthy owner uh, under um, correct mosaic laws uh, that would put the owner um, in a righteous standing with the community, and he's just bringing these discounts in. Or it could be that he's simply cutting out his take of these debts, which would be a notorious thing to do. We don't know. What we do know is that the motive for why he's giving these discounts, his clear objective is to get in the good graces of these debtors so that once he's fired, he has some friends. He has some sympathizers. To give you an idea of exactly how much of a discount this manager is giving to these debtors, Daryl Bach in his commentary helps put real numbers to it. So the first debtor owed, if I can get it up there, a hundred measures of olive oil. Now Bach tells us that that would be equal to about 875 gallons of olive oil. That's about 150 olive trees yield. That is worth about a thousand denarii, which was their currency back then. A thousand denarii is equal to about three years' wages. So 
This manager is taking a debt that's three years' wages, and he's cutting it in half. Now, as Stu reminded us earlier, uh, next week we will be making pledges towards our Journey of Faith campaign, our capital campaign that pays for our facilities here that we are worshiping in right now. Um, We currently still owe... $482,000 on our facilities. We've been paying this off for 12 years. Uh, If we can uh, give at a rate of $175,000, which is very doable for us, we will pay this debt off in three years. Now, I know what's running through some of your minds. Lord, Send a crook to North State Bank that will offer us a discount. (laughs) But let's imagine, let's imagine that North State Bank, the bank that holds our mortgage, calls Larry tomorrow and says, Larry, I'd like you and Rob to come down to the bank and sign some papers. We want to cut your mortgage in half so that you can pay it off in a year and a half. How would you feel about our bank? Better yet, how would you feel about the man who made this happen? He'd be getting some love from us. If he fell on hard times, we would be very inclined to offer him a hand, would we not? This is exactly what this manager is doing. Now you can see how much he has elevated himself in the graces of these debtors. Uh, You see, this this dishonest steward's fate with his master is sealed. He's fired. But he can still improve his status with others. He is planning for his future. He's looking not just for future employment and resources, but for people who will befriend him. And it appears he has secured it in a, in a rather clever way. And to this, the master commends him. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, this is where textual critics, commentary writers, and all the rest of us start scratching our heads. Is is our parabolic master commending the dishonest manager, or is Jesus commending the dishonest manager? What's being commended? Is the crook being commended, or his shrewdness? Is is Jesus advising us in verse 9 to buy our friends? Let's answer these questions one by one. First, is the master, who our, par- our parable master, is he commending the steward or is Jesus? There is almost unanimous agreement among scholars and commentators that he, this is representing the wealthy employer. The Greek word kurios, which means lord or master, is the same word used in this verse as is used in verses 3 and 5 earlier to describe the wealthy landowner. So it makes no sense for Jesus to turn the use of the word here on himself. 
Question number two, is the dishonest manager being commended or just his shrewdness? Well, you have to do some interpretive gymnastics to make an argument that the dishonest manager is being commended wholesale. That makes no sense. That goes against most of Jesus' other teaching, all of Jesus' other teaching. He wouldn't commend a crook. However, it makes perfect sense that the master would be commended for his clever, or excuse me, the manager would be commended for his cleverness in planning ahead. And think about it. Don't we do this? Don't we commend clever thinking and shrewdness? Robin Hood. The Italian job. Ocean's Eleven. Guardians of the Galaxy. What do all of these movies have in common? (laughs) The lead role in all of these movies is a crook who we look at as a hero. I mean, think about it. Robin Hood's moniker is that he steals from the rich to give to the poor. Ocean's Eleven and the Italian Job are about robbers, clever robbers, who pull off these ridiculous bank heists. Guardians of the Galaxy's lead characters were previously a thief, an assassin, and an arsonist. Why on earth do we pull for these people? much less call them heroes. We admire them for two reasons, I believe. One of which is an ethical errancy on our part, and the other which is a truly noble reason. We are wrong to admire them because we believe their ends justify their means. When Robin Hood steals from the rich to give to the poor, our ethical compasses, which we're never previously uh, wondering which way is true north, are all of a sudden confused. How can what Robin Hood is doing be wrong when the result is so good? Don't you think God is more pleased with the results and he can kind of look over how we got there? No. No, I don't. And we don't have to wonder what God thinks about stealing or about giving to the poor. He's said it very clearly to us. Thou shalt not steal. And in 1 John, he says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see, church, if we would believe and obey our Lord's commands, Robin Hood would be out of a job. He'd have no need to steal from the rich to give to the poor. The poor would be taken care of. But we acquiesce to pragmatism, which makes a mockery of our faith in God and in His Word. Either we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, and we order our lives by it, 
or we allow some other authority, mostly our own personal ethical compasses, moral compasses, to dictate when it's allowable to deviate from God's word for the greater good. In church, that is a dangerous road. The more noble reason that we admire Robin Hood and Danny Ocean is due to their shrewdness. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this, uh, says it well. He says, When, in spite of every, ever so many precautions and burglar protection devices, a bank is robbed, and the newspapers describe how it was done, people will remark, How clever. This surely does not mean that they are recommending the burglars for a distinguished medal of honor. Far from it. They want those criminals to receive the sentence they deserve. Listen to what he says. Nevertheless, would that all true believers were as clever in spiritual matters as these crooks implying their trade. This is one of the main points that Jesus is making in our parable. He says it in the second half of verse 8. Second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world, that's a euphemism for unbelievers, worldly-minded people, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That would be, that would be us. Um, they are more clever in thinking about planning for the future than we are. And Jesus makes application to this in the very next verse. He says, I tell you, he brings their attention to himself, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, in other words, just track with me here, just as the dishonest steward was generous, albeit for selfish reasons, to the debtors, and in doing so, he made friends with them, friends who would receive him into their homes. So too, believers are to be generous with our wealth, so securing eternal friends who will then welcome us into heaven and our eternal home. Jesus is teaching us to prioritize eternal things over temporal, just as the steward was planning for his earthly future. We should invest toward our eternal home. What does that mean for us as believers? He's saying, be generous. Be generous with all that I've given you, so securing for yourself friends. I love the way that friends that would welcome you into our, our heavenly home. I love the way Bob Deffenbaugh says it. He says, notice how Jesus speaks of heaven here. He is speaking to a materialistic society, but he does not describe it in terms of its golden streets as we have seen in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Why? Can't you just see heaven if Jesus let in those who loved money? They would all be out with their little miner's picks and assaying the value of the gold in the streets of heaven. But Jesus chose to describe heaven as a place where one's friends would be. Evangelism is many things, but one of these is the process of making friends. One of the blessings of heaven will not be its streets of gold, but its saints, especially if we have used our lives and our money 
to win men and women to Christ to pave their way, as it were, to heaven, where they will await our arrival. This is the same principle that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 that Randy Alcorn has termed the treasure principle. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and do not steal. We plan for our future now by investing in ways to elevate it, to make it better. So, how should believers invest in the here and now? Jesus says, be generous in making eternal friends. My dad is a financial planner, and I grew up under his tutelage. Um, I was taught to plan and to save. And one uh, one of the things that he taught me is that a good investment blesses everyone it touches. Everyone it touches. So, let's say I was to invest in a Christmas tree farm. It's highly likely, isn't it? If I was to invest in a Christmas tree farm, and it was going to be a good investment, then this farm would produce good green Christmas trees that we could sell at a good price that would bless the consumer and at a profit margin that would allow us to pay our workers a good salary and provide a satisfactory return on investment for me. Everyone involved is blessed. That's a good, wise investment. I have found this to be sage wisdom. And I believe the Bible would agree with this wisdom with a small caveat. The Bible over and over again teaches us that personal sacrifice is a virtue. Listen to these verses. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Paul in Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And then in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you notice? Did you notice all the sacrifice that was in all those verses? We're all made with the reward in sight. Did you see that? Moses gave up his sonship to Pharaoh and endured ill treatment because Christ was better than all the treasures of Egypt. Paul suffered the loss of all things, but he gained Christ. Yes, we lose our life, but only to find true life. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, which we didn't read, he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. This kind of sacrifice is what my dad and other financial advisors would call a long-term investment. You are not looking for a quick return on your investment. You are willing to make sacrifices and endure the ups and down fluctuations of the market because you believe that the long-term return is going to be worth it. So Jesus is using this crook, this clever crook, to provoke us towards thinking more strategically about how we be generous with our wealth, how we plan for the long term as believers with our wealth. He calls it unrighteous wealth. Why? Well, you don't have to connect too many dots to see why. Money has an incredible ability to corrupt and to make us selfish. An online survey conducted by the New York law firm Labatton and Sacro of 250 financial advisors, professionals, revealed the following. 52% felt it likely their competitors had engaged in unethical or illegal activity to gain a market advantage. 29% believe financial service professionals may need to engage in unethical or illegal activity in order to be successful. 24% said they would likely engage in illegal insider trading to make $10 million if they could get away with it. The survey concluded, a particularly troubling and consistent finding throughout the survey is that Wall Street's future leaders the young professionals who will one day assume control of the trillions of dollars that the industry manages have lost their moral compasses. They accept corporate wrongdoing as a necessary evil and fear reporting this misconduct. Money has a corrupting power. It is not evil in and of itself, but it has a dangerous allure that calls to us to love it to place our hope in it. So Jesus is being a good shepherd and he's helping guard us from this temptation. Jesus concludes the parable with several additional points of wisdom. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who who will entrust to you 
the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and money. If you ask me to borrow my lawnmower, and then you took it, and you destroyed it by mowing over some small saplings that were in your yard, I am not likely to loan you my car. Call me foolish. A person who is faithful in caring for little things is more likely to be faithful in caring for larger things. Science is actually backing up this moral truth. The Huffington Post recently published an article about how science is finding how the brain reacts to lying. It says, an old moral truth has just been affirmed by science. A group of neurologists recently released a study demonstrating how the repeated telling of small lies numbs the brain and quickly enables one's conscience to tell much bigger lies. This is because the brain responds to repeated acts of dishonesty. According to the study published in the Journal of Nature and Neuroscience, it's called emotional adaptation, says Tali Sharat, an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University College London and co-author of the study. Whether it's evading taxes, being unfaithful, doping in sports, making up data, or committing financial fraud, deceivers often recall, recall how small acts of dishonesty snowballed over time. The part of the brain that the researchers think is responsible for regulating the negative emotions experienced when lying is the amygdala. When we lie for personal gain, our amygdala produces a negative feeling that, result, that limits the extent to which we are prepared to lie, says Sherat. However, this response fades as we continue to lie. This may lead to a slippery slope where small acts of dishonesty escalate into more significant lies. The study suggests that these findings can be applied in the future to industries with particularly strong interest in curbing dishonesty, such as financial and political organizations. Of course, the best bet would be to avoid lying altogether. Science is simply affirming what the Apostle Paul told all of us and to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said to Timothy, Now the Spirit express expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. When we devote ourselves to deceit and lying, our conscience becomes calloused. It becomes seared to the good, convicting work of the Spirit of God. That would give us pause and even turn us from telling these lies. And don't miss what Jesus is also saying in verse 11. He says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? By comparison, the unrighteous wealth of this wealthy landowner is minuscule compared to what Jesus calls the true riches. 
That is the spiritual blessings of future service in the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is pointing us towards the future. And he's saying, be wise stewards now, thinking about our future. He concludes with what is probably the most familiar verse in the parable. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I don't know anyone today who argues that money doesn't hold power, authority, and allegiance over our society like a God. In fact, it's so commonly understood that economists are seeing themselves as secular priests. In a Washington Post editorial, Doug Bando wrote, Economists have long argued about whether theirs is a value-free science. Robert Nelson, an economist at the University of Maryland, emphatically says that it is not. Yes, he admits, economists provide technical knowledge, but he contends, and I quote, another basic role of economists is to serve as the priesthood of a modern secular religion of economic progress that serves many of the same functions in contemporary society as earlier Christian and other religions did in their time. Money is our culture's God, and economists see themselves as our priests, and it is really hard to argue with them. NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, Quinnipiac University, George Washington University, USA Today, Bloomberg Report, Gallup, they have all done surveys asking the same question. What is the most important issue to our voters in this election? And every single one of them returned different results, but the same answer was at the top of every single poll. And we all know what it is. It sits... Our economy and our money sits atop our poles like the Ashereth poles set on top of the high places in Israel for the worshipers of Baal to come and worship. Hear what the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the God of heaven and earth, who, as Philippians 2 told us, gave up everything taking on the form of a servant. Hear what he says to the church. A growing love for money will cause you to despise me. That's what he he is saying in this verse. You will either hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. And the sad reality is is that money promises much more than it can deliver. And so Jesus, in shepherding us, 
is calling us to be a generous people who steward the things that we've been given in such a way as our hearts and our minds are set on our future, which is glorious. North Wake, you are exceptional at generosity. Unlike uh, any people I know, I've been a part of this body of believers for 13 years now. And every single year I've been here, we have taken at least three weeks at some point in the year to teach on uh, the vice of materialism and money and the virtue of generosity and faithful stewardship. And I believe God has been merciful in giving our elders wisdom to plan that into our calendar year. Uh, we have been able to do amazing things, and we are not a people with deep pockets. We are a people with deep hearts. It's been so fun. I want to encourage you, and Jesus wants to encourage you. Excel all the more. Don't stop. Don't go backwards. Go forwards. Be more generous. Invest in our future. Use these resources that God has given us to make friends who will welcome us once we come home. One of the verses I memorized when I was a kid was Luke 12, 48. And that says, to whom much is given, much will be required. And I believe that is so true of us. We are so wealthy, not just financially. The resources of this church, when, when uh, international believers come and visit us, we have a family that comes uh, from Egypt every once in a while, and they just, they, 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 their eyes get huge. They can't believe the resources that we have and the ability we have to teach and to send out people into the field. But with that blessing comes great responsibility. So excel all the more. Larry put up that chart last week showing uh, how we give, and he encouraged us to move ourselves to the right, to pray about it. And I think that's a good encouragement from our shepherd. It would be Jesus' encouragement to us. We should be the most generous people on earth. We began with John Foreman asking us, what direction? What direction? Life begins at this intersection. What direction? What direction? What direction now? As the worship team comes up to lead us in a closing song, Jesus is holding up before us the virtues of faithful stewardship of our wealth and resources. He's imploring us to be shrewd in our decisions and liberal with our generosity. Did you hear that? He wants us to be clever, shrewd, as clever as, uh, as we can be in investing towards our future and to be liberally generous. What direction? 
Will we possess our possessions or will they possess us? That's John Foreman again. Let's pray. Oh God, if we, if we don't give thanks to you from the bottom of our hearts for the amazing grace that you have shown us and the provisions that you have made for us and the resources that you have equipped us with and the wealth of teaching that you've given to us at this church, the wealth of uh, instrumentalists and musicians that encourage us as they play their instruments. If, if we do not give thanks to you, our souls would truly erupt. You are a generous God who has been so generous to us. And you are guarding our hearts today uh, against folly, against what Faust and Midas found out to be uh, destructive to their souls. So give us ears to hear, Spirit, what you have said to the church through uh, your disciple Luke. And may we be uh, obedient and give us great joy in our obedience. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.